that story is the ultimate language. It's the ultimate operating system for the brain. And once you get that, then you make sure that your talks always contain a percentage of story. You tell them some information and then you use a story to prove it. Or you tell them a story and they get the information inside the story. But the fact is, no emotion, no memory. Done. I am Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas in personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. So, the first thing we talked about this morning is the stage effect. So the stage effect is the unfair advantage that you create for yourself by standing in front of an audience. And I just, I wanna, I wanna give you a, a little bit more information about that. The stage effect is a really fascinating thing. The stage effect is kind of like, it works like this. The quality of your presentation plus the size of the audience creates the level of attraction you create as a speaker. Does that make sense? So what that means is that the bigger your audience, the more attraction that's gonna happen. And I've noticed this very much in my career because when I would go out on tour, when I launch in a new country, I might go on a tour in a new country and nobody knows me and so I go there and some of the events might have 20 or 30 or 40 people, but then some of those people end up coming to one of my workshops. Those people have a certain attitude toward me when they come to the workshop. As my career in any given country gets bigger, like I came here to Tallinn some years ago and I did an event and there were about 2,500 people in the audience. When those people come to my events, they treat me differently than the people who saw me with 30 people. Because there's something powerful about people watching you. The same thing applies on YouTube. Somebody sends you a video and it's got four views and somebody sends you another video and it's got four million views. Which one are you gonna watch? The views are the size of the audience. And so if it's got 4 million views, you're more likely to watch it. If you've got 5,000 people in the audience, it creates more attraction. And so what this means is that when you stand up in front of an audience and you deliver from your heart, you are creating a level of attraction that is far beyond what you can create one-on-one. -on -one. If there's 10 people in the audience, it's far more attraction than one-on-one. -on -one. This is so important because in marketing, there is no system of marketing that is more effective than personal contact. I'm not talking about effective in numbers. There's many systems that can do better with numbers, but I'm talking about effective when it comes to creating a lasting memory or impression with somebody. Nothing will create a more lasting impression really than face-to-face -face contact with somebody. But the problem is, is face-to-face -face contact isn't very practical. How many people can you meet and really connect with in a day? Eight, if you really have it back to back and you're spending, I mean, I don't know. And look, if you live in England, you can kind of travel around pretty quickly and meet with a lot of people because there's 60 million people living on a postage stamp. <laughs> but if you live in Canada, it's a little different. I was working in Canada in Vancouver and I had a client in England and we've been doing business for a few years, but we'd never met before. And one day he calls me and he goes, Eric, we're finally gonna get to meet. And I said, awesome, what's happening? He goes, I've got a conference I have to go to. I'm coming to Canada. I said, that's great. I said, what's the schedule? And he goes, well, I'm flying into Toronto on Monday. The conference is on Tuesday and I've got Wednesday and Thursday free. So I figure we should get together for lunch. And I said, okay, um, and, and, and how are you planning to come out to Vancouver? And he goes, I have a rental car. <laughs> now, some of you will be aware of North American geography, but some might not. So I just want to put this in perspective. This is Canada for you. If you would like to drive from Halifax, Nova Scotia, to Vancouver, Canada, 
and you have three friends to do the driving with you, and the car only stops for you to put petrol in. You eat and sleep in the car. It will take you four and a half days. It's just, you know, it's a big place. What I'm getting at is face-to-face contact in our world today is not going to be the most effective because it takes so much time. But the good news is, is that face-to-face contact is even more powerful face-to-faces. It's even more powerful. I am, well, let me ask you, and if you already know the answer, I don't need your answer. If you don't know me, you haven't met me, am I introverted or extroverted? How many people think that I'm pretty extroverted? Who thinks I'm pretty extroverted? Seems so. I'm up here on stage, whatever. How many of you think I'm more introverted? So the fact of the matter is, I am significantly more introverted than I am extroverted. You will notice I will walk around here. I don't walk up and talk to people all the time and introduce myself. I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm shy. I'm just introverted. And one of the greatest tools of the introvert is learning how to be great at storytelling and standing on stage because then you don't have to go meet people. <laughs> they come and meet you. It's different. You meet them all at once. It's an incredibly powerful thing. But that's social. But what about economic? And so the example I often use economically is that if I'm a business consultant, and let's say I've got my friend, Derek, Eric and Derek, and I am the introverted business consultant, and he's also an introverted business consultant, and we've decided to buddy coach each other. We're going to try and get through our stuff. And what we're going to do is we're going to go to a networking event, and we're going to try and have a competition to see who can meet the most people. So introverted Business consultant Derek goes off to the event, pocket full of business cards, and he's handing out business cards, and he's meeting all the people. So good to meet you. I'm so happy to meet you. Here's my card. Do you have a card with you? Do you have a, and do you have a card as well? Can I have? And, 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 and Derek is meeting them all. And at the end of the day, he's got a pocket full of business cards. I, on the other hand, introverted Eric, business consultant too, I don't want to do all that. I call the organizer and say, hi, I'd like to come and speak at your conference. Here's my showreel, here's my bio, boom, and I get myself booked as a speaker. I walk on stage, I speak for 45 minutes, I make people laugh, maybe cry, maybe think, I give them distinctions. Who's gonna have the most business cards at the end of this conference? I probably am, but, but wait a minute, let's call it a tie. Let's say we get back to our hotel room, we take out our stacks of business cards, we put them down, and it turns out it's a tie, okay? So we have to go to the tiebreaker round. The tiebreaker round, how does that work? Well, what we do is we start calling the people we met. So Derek starts picking up the phone and saying, hey, do you remember how we met at the conference? It was over by the Starbucks. I was the blue shirt. Do they remember him? Barely. A few might. What if I call them? I pick up the phone and go, hi, it's Eric. <gasps> You're, Eric's calling from the presentation? I've created a deeper lasting memory. Is it true? So the tiebreaker is that I have as many business cards, but these business cards mean something. They connect something. Now, let's go to the next tiebreaker round. Which one can charge more for the same consulting services? I want you to hear me about this. This is not a small thing. This person does not charge 10% more than this person. This person can charge many times what this person can charge. I didn't fully understand this until one day I was doing an event in Las Vegas, Nevada. And I did my presentation at this event. Many speakers were there. I spoke for about two hours. These guys walked up to me afterward. I was standing with my wife. They walked up and they said, we'd like to buy you lunch. What do I know at this point? They want something. But I'm hungry. (laughs) So I accept the lunch. And so we go off for lunch. And we're sitting there at lunch. And they start trying to hire me to work for their company in California. 
I don't want to live in California. I live in the Dominican Republic. And just to put this in perspective for you, how many of you are familiar with kiteboarding? Anybody? So how many are not familiar with kiteboarding, but you are familiar with wakeboarding? So I'll describe kiteboarding for you. It's like wakeboarding, right? It's like wakeboarding. You're on a snowboard type thing. And in wakeboarding, the boat is pulling you, right? But with kiteboarding, it's like you control the boat and the boat can fly. It's an incredible sport. And I live on Kite Beach and there's wind 10 months of the year. San Diego is beautiful, but the wind is seasonal and the water is, there's a technical term for this. Let me just, I have it here. I have it in my phone. I, had, I looked it up. Freaking cold. It's really cold. And so where I live, I don't need a wetsuit even in December. I'm not interested in going to live there. I don't want the job. But they keep trying to get me to do it. And I finally said, look, what do you really want from me? And they explained what they were looking for. And I said, "Um, no, I I really, I don't want to. And they said, well, could we hire you as a consultant? Actually, no, I'm not looking. I'm I'm busy. I have a full calendar. I'm not. I want to spend time with my family. I don't really want to. But I don't like saying no. And so sometimes I'll say no with a number. One of the things I've realized after conducting well over a thousand interviews with the world's greatest thought leaders in everything from entrepreneurship to spirituality to health and wellness to relationship is that life is enormous and there are so many ways we can make our life better and better in every way, in every single day. If you're successful in just one area of life, you might just suck in another. I've known billionaires whose romantic lives were in shambles. I've known incredibly emotionally intelligent people who just couldn't make money. And that's totally fine. It doesn't matter where you are. Life doesn't have to stay the same forever. You're not cursed or destined to be miserable or unlucky in love or struggling to make ends meet. You were just never thought how to have it all, how to do things differently, how to master the human experience from a mind, body, and soul perspective. This is where Mind Valley membership comes in. When you become a Mind Valley member, you are coached by the greatest teachers in the world. You get to live a life beyond your wildest dreams and learn the best systems, protocols, methods, step by step by step in just 20 minutes a day to get there. You become the man or woman that you've always aspired to be. And this happens in the easiest, most effective way because of the Mind Valley transformational model. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now. Don't settle for ordinary. Don't settle for your life the way it is now. Aspire to step into your greatness. <laughs> this is one of the smartest ways that any of you will learn to raise your prices. You deliver so much value that people want to do business with you, and then you say no with a bigger number. And so I decided to do that. They go, well, could we have you come in for like one week of the month for six months? And I want to say no, but I don't. Instead, I said, sure, it'd be $20,000 for each week. They said, okay. I said, oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) And then I said, wait, whoa, 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 before you say, okay, I don't fly on the weekend. I'm with my family. I fly on the Monday and I fly home on the Friday. So it's three days. $20,000. And they said, okay. And so for the next six months, I did this. Before that, I would have sold days for a fraction of that amount if I was open to consulting, which I wouldn't have sold because I didn't want it. But all of a sudden, I found the stage effect has an immediate and powerful financial return. It helps you sell things. It helps you get a job. It helps you get that promotion. It helps you get the funding for your business. It helps you recruit people for your company. 
It is the ability to leverage. It's so powerful. Now, in order for that to work, though, we have to have some skills. We talked today about how to get more comfortable, but now what we have to do is talk about some skills. One of the most important skills you can develop as a speaker is the ability to go to a conference and deliver a talk that will appeal to the highest percentage of the whole audience, irrespective of the topic. Because you will occasionally get asked to speak at conferences where there's a wide variety of people in the audience and your topic might only appeal to half or a third of the people. Is that possible? And so the trouble is, is you'd almost be better off if the other people would just leave. Because if they stay in the room with their naysayer energy, if they stay in the room checking their Facebook, if they stay in the room talking to each other, they're gonna ruin the energy of the room and they're gonna distract other people from your presentation. You know, they don't all sit on their side right? You got the interested person and the disinterested person and the interested person, and then it messes up the room and you can't make them leave. And so what you need to do is keep their attention. And so doing that, we use something we call broad spectrum appeal. That is to deliver with broad spectrum. It's to deliver in a way where the audience likes what's going on, even if the topic isn't a direct match for them. So there's some keys to this. The first key, use stories. We already talked about it this morning. Stories are the operating system of the human mind. Look, if you tell somebody something, they're not gonna remember it. But if you relay the information to them in a story that triggers emotion, they're gonna remember it. You see, your mind has too much stuff to process. And so what it does is it decides what to hold on to. And what it will hold on to is anything that has an emotion attached to it. Does this make sense to you? See, if, if you have a day that's completely boring and you have no emotions about that day, are you gonna remember that day? No. But if you have a day where you had an intense emotional experience, like say somebody drove into your car, are you gonna remember that day? You had an intense emotional experience. If you have no emotion, there'll be no memory. If you have too much emotion, you, you could end up with PTSD. That's ultimately what it's about, is that the emotion is so intense that it writes the memory in so solidly that it can't be shaken out. Now, once we begin to understand that emotion is the glue that causes memories to stick, once we get that, then we know that we have to deliver things in story format. That is the operating system of the human brain. Now, sometimes people come to me and go, well, Eric, that's all fine and good. You're up there telling your stories. I don't have any stories. Does anybody feel a little like that? Don't have so many stories? Or the other thing they say is, well, Eric, I have to just deliver numbers. I, I just, I'm an accountant and I have to deliver numbers to the board of the company. How do I do that story? Well, what you begin to realize is that delivering a story is about the way you deliver anything. And, and what I mean is, is that if I have to come and deliver the numbers, then I can walk out here and I can say, Ladies and gentlemen of the board, I have the numbers. We projected 14% growth on the quarter, and in fact, we achieved 16%. Well done, everyone. That's how it's done, right? In fact, that's somebody doing it quite well in our world. It can be done a lot worse than that, right? How many of you have been to a conference where you've been sitting in the middle row and you've been wishing you were on the edges? Anybody been to that conference? Right? So I've been there, and so... What if instead I walk out and go, ladies and gentlemen of the board, I've got the numbers from the accounting department today, 
And I'm really excited about this because when we set the targets, you'll remember we projected 14% growth on the quarter. And you might recall, I wasn't a big believer. I wasn't so optimistic about that. And so this morning, when I got the numbers from the accounting department, I held the envelope in my hand. And I, I just took a moment before I opened it. And then I tore the envelope open and I read the report. And then I had to read it a second time. And I'm not kidding, I had to read it a third time to understand what had happened. We projected 14% growth on the quarter. And what we actually achieved was 16%. Is it different? I created suspense. I created drama and I made it a story. It didn't even take much longer. But I did it in a way that you will now remember that. In fact, I will be able to walk up to some of you three, four days from now and go, how much growth did we post? And you'll go, yeah, it was 16%. Right? Like you will, because I gave it to you in story. So the first thing you have to understand is it's not even that you have to have so many stories. It's that you have to recognize that the information needs to be delivered in story format. When it's delivered in story format, it becomes memorable. The only way you're going to get anybody to remember anything is by linking an emotion to it. How many people in this room you had in school, in your first 12 years of school, you had at least one or two teachers that to this day, you would love to have lunch with them and thank them for the contribution they made in your life. Keep your hand up if they were a storyteller. Nine times out of 10, more like 9,999 times out of 1,000, these guys are storytellers. Isn't it true? They're totally storytellers. And, and the teachers that didn't tell you stories, you don't remember what they taught you. And these days, you don't even remember their name. Do you know, I grew up largely in Halifax, Nova Scotia, in the eastern side of Canada. And one of my teachers, when I was in grade three, and I know every country uses different, grade three means like eight years old. And so I was seven or eight years old, and I was in his class. And he was brilliant at storytelling. He understood everything about storytelling. He understood the suspense he used to sit in his chair and he would put his one leg up on his desk, you know, kind of bad form, don't you think? So we often would sit in our, and when he would come into the class and we're eight years old and we'd put our feet up on our desks. And then he walked in one day and he goes, you guys think that's funny, don't you? And we're like, yeah, you do it so we can do it. Kid thinking, right? And he goes, well, I'm going to tell you why I do it. He said, one day I was going out on my first date in my car and I was driving along and I dropped my girlfriend off at her house after an incredible date. And then I turned around and I was so high. I was so happy. I was so full of love from this experience. I'd gone out on my first date in my, first, in my car on my first time. And I was driving along and I was heading along. And then suddenly something happened to the car. Somebody had t hit me a little bit from behind. And then the car started to slide. And it was sliding toward this tree. And I saw the tree. And it was the weirdest thing because there was nothing I could do. And the tree just kept getting closer and closer. And it was almost like slow motion. And all of a sudden, I, we just, I just slammed into the, into the tree. And then a little while later, I woke up on the road. I had been flung out of the car. And I woke up on the road. And the weirdest thing is I'd never been able to do the splits before. But now I was on the road and I was doing the splits. Only the problem was my knee was bent here. And so this bone had been broken so badly that it was sticking out through the skin. And so now there's a metal rod in my leg. And so when I sit at my desk while you guys are working, if I don't lift my leg up on the desk, it becomes incredibly painful. That's why I put my feet on my desk. He says, otherwise it's considered to be incredibly impolite. And I'm sorry I didn't share that with you earlier. I was eight. I still remember that story. Incidentally, I have not shared that story once from stage ever until this moment. Never have I shared that story that I can think of. I still remember it from when I was eight. Then, then one day he comes in and he goes, 
because one of the important types of stories to tell are metaphorical or allegorical stories, where you tell a story that the audience wants to hear. This is broad spectrum appeal. You tell a story that the audience wants to hear, but that's teaching something else. Do you understand? And so he walks in one day and he goes, guys, it's health class. Does he have our attention? No, we're eight. Health class doesn't get interesting until you're 12. Right? I mean, let's be clear. 12, 13, health class starts getting a little, you won't admit it, but it's starting to get interesting, right? You're eight years old. It's not interesting. So he's like, it's health class. Nobody's interested. And he, and he walks up to the blackboard and he takes out this thing and he's like, he says, all right. Now, does he have our attention? Why does he have our attention? It's 1978. It's 1978. And I don't, how many of you guys are Harry Potter fans? Okay. However big Harry Potter got, it will never hit society the way Star Wars did. Not ever. You watch any three hours of television in North America, any three hours of television, news, sitcom, movie, you will hear a Star Wars reference. It's the way it is. He understood this in 1978. In 1978, he was drawing characters from the Star Wars universe, and he did this. He goes, now, this force field. Was he brilliant? This force field is your skin. He says, these are antibodies. They are defending you. And these are the germs and bacteria that are trying to get into your body and make you sick. I was eight years old. And that's exactly what the blackboard looked like because he understood how to tell stories. Storytelling will change everything about the way you do a presentation. It will change everything about the way the audience receives it. And the beauty is stories are broad spectrum automatically. The toughest audience I ever had, the absolute toughest audience I ever had, I got this phone call, Eric, would you come and speak for this inner city school in London? I will speak for schools pretty much unreservedly if I'm around, if I'm nearby. And I'll do it pro bono. If I'm around, it's free. I'll show up and do it. The one thing is, is that when I'm doing pro bono speaking, I won't always put the same level of preparation as when I'm getting paid. I have things to do in my life. So if I'm speaking for free, I just kind of show up and wing it. I've got enough stage experience that I can usually pull that off. It's okay. And I get to the school and I haven't done any research and I walk in and the headmistress walks up to me and she says, are you ready? And I go, yeah, totally, I'm ready. I said, which kids am I speaking for? And she said, all of them. I said, oh, really? What kind of school is this? Is it a high school? Because I could speak to all of them. You know, high school? 16 to 18, I could do that. Or is it a junior high? You know, 13 to 16, I could do that. Or is it like the last half of elementary school? You know, six to 12, or you say eight to 12. Or is it elementary school? I could do that. Six to five to eight or something. I could handle that. She goes, no, it's a K-12. I said, K-12, that means, for those you don't understand K-12, it means that the youngest kids will be four years old and the oldest kids will be 19. They will be from four to 19 in one audience. I said, really? How interesting. <laughs> I said, how long do I have to speak for? An hour and a half. They're from four, four. to 19. And I'm gonna speak for an hour and a half. I said, okay, excellent, no problem. <laughs> And so immediately I start going through the system. I'm going, I have to, if I have to create broad spectrum appeal, I got to figure out what's common to all these kids. Like I've got to figure it out. First thing that is common to all of them, stories. Stories are common to all of them. Now you have to tell the stories slightly nuanced, but the fact is four-year-olds, do four-year-olds like stories? They like the same story 
over and over and over again. And do 19-year-olds like stories? Sure they do. In fact, layered stories is one of the most valuable skills you can develop in the world, and you all know this, even if you've never heard the term before. Layered stories, this is what I'm talking about. How many of you have ever watched a Disney movie with children, and you've noticed that you suddenly realized as a child, you were watching a movie that was actually made for your adults? Isn't it true? You watch a Disney movie and there's weird little sexual innuendos, adult jokes, and they're all above the consciousness of children. So they're telling two stories. And so this idea of being able to tell parallel stories or multi-layered stories is really valuable. So I'm thinking, okay, I got to tell a story and I got to make sure it's got four-year-old features and it's got 19-year-old features and all between. First thing I decide. Second thing, what else is common to all these kids? Games. Do four-year-olds like games? Do 19-year-olds like games? Done deal. I've got it covered. Then I think about, I need one more thing. I need a thread. I need some kind of thread that I can use. And I suddenly realize what it is. And I thought back to Mr. Kolchinsky, Harry Potter, because that was what was going on back then. If you were four years old, did you like Harry Potter? Damn right you did. If you were five or six years old, did you like Harry Potter? Absolutely. If you were seven or eight or nine or 10 or 11 years old, if you were 12 years old, did you like Harry Potter? Absolutely. If you were 13, 14, 15, 17, 18, 19, did you like Harry Potter? You did, but secretly. <laughs> you read the books in a brown paper bag, right? You, you didn't, you liked them, but it was a bit of, and by the way, if you were 20, 25, 30, 35, 40 years old, did you like Harry Potter? Yeah. Damn right you did. My wife and I lined up at a bookstore to buy the final Harry Potter book at the bookstore on release night at midnight, and we had to buy two copies because there was no way one was waiting for the other. Harry Potter was pervasive. It was pervasive. And so then I went out and I delivered a talk for these kids and I used stories. I played a game with them and I used Harry Potter references. I talked about, guys, I'm gonna show you some really cool stuff. And by the time I show you this stuff about your life, all the other people will seem like muggles to you. <laughs> Did that work for them? Yes. Yeah. And at the end of my talk, the kids celebrated. I got a big clap from them. Everything was fantastic. And normally when I finish a talk, it's the audience that wants to come over and say hello and take a picture and do that fun stuff. Not this time. This time it was the teachers. The teachers literally, and by the way, I, I just want to, especially if you guys are any Americans here, literally means actually. <laughs> I just want to be clear that you can't have your head literally explode unless it actually explodes. I just want to be clear about that. Something that bothers me every now and again. So, so the teachers literally, which, which means they actually, right? Literally, they cornered me. I'm, I've got my back against the wall and the teachers are surrounding me and they're going, how did you do that? How, how did you do that? I can't hold them for half an hour. One age group. And I said, first of all, you need to relax. <laughs> I said, I only had to hold them one time. I only had to hold them one time. And I was new and I was novel. You can't blame yourself. The first thing is I only had to hold them the one time. And they're like, yeah, but still, like I have to hold them for a whole hour for my class and I just can't do it. You held them for an hour and a half in all the age groups. How did you do that? And I said, and I broke it down for them. I said, guys, it's about storytelling. I told them about Mr. Kolchinsky. And no kidding, they immediately asked me if I could come back and speak at the school again for the teachers. Because teachers are not being taught really effectively how to teach. They're being taught how to babysit and how to run curriculum.
Does this make sense? So, so broad spectrum appeal, it starts with the recognition that story is the ultimate language. It's the ultimate operating system for the brain. And once you get that, then you make sure that your talks always contain a percentage of story. You tell them some information and then you use a story to prove it. Or you tell them a story and they get the information inside the story. But the fact is no emotion, no memory, done. Then the next thing you saw me do there is what is the common thread of the audience? You always wanna know what's the common thread of the audience. As best you can, figure out who your audience is and try to figure out what's common about them. And, and if you can't find anything that's common about them, that might be the common thing. I will often come out here and do it right now. Shout out some of the countries you guys are from. Let me hear it. Canada, Canada United States, Mexico, Mexico UK, Brazil, Brazil Korea. Korea. Israel, the Ukraine, Crimea, that's, that's Russia now, isn't it? Ooh, that's not funny. The point is, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, I've found something where you're all uncommon with each other, only I've made it common because you're an incredibly international group. And suddenly I can speak to you all about being, I've created something uncommon into common. Does this make sense? And so you want to look at what the common threads are in the audience. And then let's get to delivery. Delivery is so straightforward, guys. And it's not what most conference speakers are doing. How many of you guys were at the finals, at the Speaking Academy finals? Okay, there were what, 14 or 15 speeches? Have you ever in your life been to a conference where all 14 or 15 speakers appeal to you like that? What happened there? Do you know what many of you came up and said to me? Many of you walked up to me after that and said, but why were they at a speaker course? That's what they came and said to me. I'm like, you should have seen them on day one. Some of them were very talented on day one. Some of them were so shy and so nervous on day one that if you handed them a microphone, it kind of looked like this. And that's not what it looked like on day five, did it? So one of the things that we showed them and that you saw was using a range of vocal techniques, not speaking in one tone, You've all been to that conference where somebody stands up and for an hour puts you to sleep and they weren't even a hypnotist, <laughs> but they should have been. Ladies and gentlemen and fellow Toastmasters. I don't mean, look, I love Toastmasters. I really do. It's one of the, every one of you should go join a Toastmasters and get practice. The challenge is, is that it's a great place to practice. And what often is happening is, is that people are becoming formulaic speakers. If anybody ever comes up to me and says, did somebody do your course? The only reason I want them to know that they did my course is because they were so much themselves. I don't want everybody coming out being the same. You understand? So when we talk about delivering, we're talking about delivering with passion, with, with you delivering yourself to the audience, with you being who you are. I am not interested in the speakers that can come up and act really well. It can be fascinating. It can be wonderful. I saw a talk once. It's one of the best talks I've ever done. I admire the speaker a great deal. It was incredibly funny. It had huge poignant moments in it. It taught really valuable stuff and it was clinically perfect. It was one of the best talks I've ever done, but it was just missing one thing, heart and soul. It was perfect. He moved to the exact right place every time on the stage to say the right thing. 
And he did the right posture every single time for this thing that he did. And everything was clinical. And then when he wanted to go back and reference that story, he went back to that same spot. This is all really powerful skills to have. But if the audience can tell that you've done this same talk a hundred thousand times, then it doesn't feel genuine anymore. And the heart connection is broken with the audience. You should know your stories so well that you can tell them with imperfection. That you can tell them like you're telling them at the dining room table. Yeah, I'll be in the middle of a talk sometimes. I'll be going, you know, it's like that time. You know, uh, what are the, the archaeologists? Um, Harrison Ford. Indiana Jones, that's right. What are the odds that I forgot Indiana Jones? What are the odds of that? They say that whoever you admired most when you were 11 years old is who you grew up to become. Indiana Jones, go look at my website. I mean, I, I, I travel around the world. I'm interested in archaeology. I'm in the bush with the animals all the time. There's no chance I forgot his name. But in that moment, I will do that. Why? Because it breaks the story and makes it look like it's fresh and coming out from my soul. It makes it. And then the other thing is, is it gets the audience sitting on the edge of their chair going, we better pay attention because he sure isn't. <laughs> right? Like it brings them in. And the other thing that it does, and please hear me about this because some of you have one of the greatest fears of speaking, and that is that you might one day be on stage and forget what you were going to say. Who's afraid of that? It's horrible. You're standing up here and you're going, oh man, they're never going to pay me now. It's just, it's horrible. But the good news is, the audience is paying attention. And so I will do my Indiana Jones trick every now and again to keep the audience live and fresh. And then every now and again, I will get distracted. Something will happen and I'll have, how many of you have ever found you're giving a presentation and you're saying words out loud, but your brain is talking to you back here? Yeah, every now and again, my brain will distract me. And then I might forget where I was going and then I'll go, where was I going with that? And then the audience is like, you were going this way. Isn't it true? They will tell you. You never need to be afraid of it again. Don't be afraid. Just tell really compelling stories. Make sure they're paying attention. Then you don't have to worry about remembering ever again. Because here's the real funny part is in many of my trainings on speaking, I will do that a few times. And then I'll come to the part where I'm teaching that I do it. I'll do it without showing them. And then I'll go, how many times have I forgotten what I was planning to say or forgot where I was in the story? And they'll say, oh, it's been three or four times this morning. And then I'll show them what I did. And then I'll say, how many of them were real? And they have no idea. They have no idea. And I will tell you, it does happen to me. I'll tell you it's 10% compared to how often I do it, but it, it does actually happen to me. And I'm never afraid of it. I'm just standing here and I go, oh crap. Where was I going with that? And I'll like look down at a section of the audience and they're like, oh, oh yeah, where was he going with that? And then they'll tell me and I'll go, thank you. And by the way, when I say thank you to them, when they came up with the answer, how do they feel? They feel great. So you don't have to worry about that. You engage the audience. You tell stories. If you tell stories, you will have their engagement, but then you have to use the vocal range. You have to use your voice. When a speaker stands up and does that, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm so glad that you came here for my talk today. Today, what I'm going to do is attempt to kill you through boredom. I'm going to use this one vocal tone the entire time, which some of you currently find pleasant. But within a short time, you will stop hearing my words at all. Who has seen that speaker? 
We all have. And now here's the good news for you. How many of you think it would be really cool to become a speaker? How many of you'd like to do that? Here's the good news. How many, you've all seen that speaker. You've all seen them. Think about this. If you've seen that speaker, that speaker is making money as a speaker. I'm not kidding you. It's like the easiest place in the world to be the best. If you just walk out and be yourself and they're not willing to do it. And so you can walk into any conference and instantly be one of the top speakers simply by being yourself, using your voice and telling stories. That, it's done. It's absolutely incredible. I just yesterday got this incredible video from Lucas. And Lucas is a young man who found me on YouTube and he ended up signing up and doing our WildFit program. I never met him and he did our WildFit program and then he got more interested in my stuff and it turned out I was doing my speaking academy program in Calgary. And so he signed up for it. He's like 23 or 24 years old. This is pretty proactive behavior for a 23 year old. And he signed up for it and he showed up and he was so quiet and so reserved. And then he At one point, he got up to introduce himself and he told this whole story that none of us knew. My team didn't know it. None of us knew it. He says, I found Eric on YouTube. I signed up and did a wild fit. I've lost 35, 40 pounds. I've given up alcohol and drugs. I've completely turned my life around because of wild fit. And so I knew I had to come out to this program and learn about speaking and stuff. So I got another video from him. I got it just yesterday. Actually, no, I got it this morning. I watched it this morning. He has, since doing the speaking academy, gone out and spoken in two speech contests, like in these big contests for speaking. And he finished in the one third place and he finished in the other one first place. He had never done public speaking before he came into the program. He is so grateful for his ability to communicate, but here's the kicker. Those winning prizes things, that all that was for him was empirical evidence. What really blew him away is that now when he has to talk to the adults in his life, he's able to communicate to them effectively. Now, when he has to talk to the police, if somebody pulls him over for speeding or whatever, he's able to talk to them effectively. He said it's given him this ability to communicate and it's fantastic. It changes everything. Do you know, I was driving along in Tanzania and I had just finished, I used to run these leadership programs where I would take people up Kilimanjaro to teach them leadership skills and and state management skills and all this kind of stuff. And after the Kilimanjaro trip, we went to Zanzibar And a few of the clients came with us. My mom was meeting us there because my mom does a lot of work in Africa and in Tanzania specifically. And and my wife was there. And so we're in the car and I'm driving and I'm driving along and I'm not wearing a shirt because it's Africa, okay? It's very hot and I'm not wearing a shirt. And I come around the corner and there's a policeman there with his car and he waves me down and he says, excuse me, can I see your driver's license, please? So I show him my driver's license. And he goes, in Tanzania, it's against the law to drive the car without your shirt. I've been in Tanzania like several times. I've climbed Kilimanjaro seven times. And I've been in that country to not climb the mountain. I've been there. It is not illegal to drive without your shirt on. Okay? But I know what's going. I go, I I don't think it's illegal to drive without your shirt on here. And he goes, yes, it is. This is a Muslim country. And I said, well, at this point in my head, I'm like, no, it's not a Muslim country. Zanzibar is a Muslim area within a larger country that has a non-denominational approach to language and religion. So no, I chose not to say that to him. (laughs) And he says, well, you're going to have to pay a fine. And I said, fine. I'm okay with that. I'm not going to pay a bribe. That's what he wants. He wants a bribe. And I won't do that. I'm not going to pay him a bribe. So he goes, well, you'll have to come with me. And it turns out that I'm right beside the police station. 
So we walk over to the police station. Now, many of you will know, or some of you might not, that Tanzania used to be Tanganyika, and it used to be under German control. And it, it, think about when it was under German control, right? Like back in those days, you know, Doberman pinchers and, and that kind of stuff. And so this building was clearly built back then. You could just see it had that Gestapo look about it. And I walk into this Gestapo building and he takes me into a little room and it's a Gestapo room. I walk into the room, it's concrete, and I sit in the chair and there's a desk and there's a guy behind the desk who is wearing a military style uniform. Like he has ribbons and medals. I'm not kidding you. This is all, by the way, designed to intimidate me. I sit down, and as I sit down in the chair, I realize that the lamp over here is aimed exactly at where my head is in the chair, still left over from when the Gestapo was there. If I listen really carefully to the walls, I can hear, we have face of getting the answers from you right now. You know, and, and I, this is all by design to freak me out, but I'm just unfreak outable. So I'm just sitting there. I just made that up. <laughs> so... So I'm sitting there having this, you know, conversation. He goes, well, you know, you should be respectful and wear your shirt and blah, blah, blah. I go, well, yeah, I guess so. But I don't really think it's illegal. So I challenge you to write me a ticket and show me how it's illegal. And he's like, well, we, maybe we could avoid the whole ticket thing. And I go, I think we should avoid the whole ticket thing. And he goes, well, maybe you could make it worth my while to avoid the ticket thing. And I said, uh, no, <laughs> write me a ticket. And so we have this little banter and conversation. And in, outside in the car, my mom is in the car with a couple of my clients and my wife. And one of the clients goes, and they're freaking out. Because you know what? If you haven't traveled a lot, and the guy you're traveling with just gets hauled away by the police in a military uniform, <laughs> you know, you've watched CNN, you know what's coming up, you know, something bad. And so, so they turn to my mom and they go, Mrs. Edmeads, which she hates, because like she changed her name back after the divorce. So yeah, Mrs. Edmeads drives her crazy. Mrs. Edmeads, are you worried about Eric? And she just sits, she's in the passenger seat of the car and she goes, nope, I'm worried about the cops. <laughs> And true to form, about four minutes later, I walk out, both cops with me. The one cop comes up, opens the door for me. No kidding, opens the door for me. I get in, he closes the door, and then he hands me a hand-drawn map that he's made to get me to the spice market. No fine, no bribe. Because I was comfortable to communicate. Being comfortable to communicate is your right. It is your right. And so one of the ways that you become comfortable with it is recognizing you're already comfortable with it. You are. You just forget every now and again. Here's one of the ways you remind yourself. It's called alcohol. <laughs> Isn't it? I mean, I'll tell you, I, I'm not a super big fan of alcohol myself. I haven't had alcohol since I was 21 years old. I have no judgment about people having alcohol. In fact, some of my friends are much better people after one drink. You know, they just, they're more fun. <laughs> but the fact is, what happens is, when we drink alcohol, our inhibitions are reduced somewhat. And I remember seeing this commercial. It was actually a radio commercial, so I didn't see it. I heard it. It was a radio commercial in Canada. And what they did is they had the sounds from a party full of eight-year-olds. And then they had, and you could hear the eight-year-olds, 10-year-olds, they're, you know, partying and doing their thing. And then a sound with adults having a party as well. And you could hear the difference. It's a big difference. Then they said, now here's the eight-year-olds after the cake and the sugar and the ice cream. Were the eight-year-olds different? Completely. It went like nuclear, blah, 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 and you're yelling, and there you can hear it. It's just incredible. And then they said, and now here's the party with the adults after four bottles of wine have been consumed by them. And what you could not tell the difference between was the children and the adults. The children on the sugar and the adults on the alcohol, you couldn't tell the difference between the sound. The pitch was slightly different, but everything else was the same. Now, what's happening is that when we drink alcohol, 
it's like it gives us permission to be a little louder than we normally are or a little quieter than we normally are or a little bit more verbal and use bigger hand gestures. Is it true? So what I'm saying to you is that you are already a good communicator, but sometimes we need a rule or a mechanism or a chemical to help us get that out. And so what I want to suggest to you is, is it doesn't have to be that way. You can watch this. Like at our workshops, you'll see me do this. I'll have somebody up on stage and they're delivering like an adult. I would like to tell you a story about the time that I went to Disneyland. And they're just talking like that. And I go, stop for a minute. Tell the story like the audience is full of 12-year-olds. What do they do on the stage? They go, I'd like to tell you the story about the time I went. They know what to do. They know what to do. They start using their full vocal range. And so I want to share with you what that looks like. There are some different like communication frequencies in our population. So there are some people that are largely more visual in the way they communicate. They're largely more visual. So what does this mean? It means really that they think in pictures and a picture is worth a thousand words. So they talk quite quickly because they got to get all the pictures out. And so visual people tend to talk really quickly and loudly and they speak like this. There are some speakers that are quite known for being very visual. Anybody have any names? Now, if you, if you want to create massive action in your life, you have to make a decision. And then once you've made the decision, you have to take action. And once you've taken action, you've got to check the results. And if you're not getting the results you want, change your approach. There are other speakers that are more auditory. They have a more steady tone. They talk with a predictable cadence. They speak in a way that is quite pleasant to listen to for a short period of time, but is also somewhat hypnotic. They use words like sound, listen to me. I'd like to share. You know, they have this kind of different energy about them. Then you've got another group of people that are a lot more kinesthetic in their delivery or feeling-centered. And they, they talk really quietly and they use long pauses. They give you time to process the things they've said. They use words like feeling and warmth, and connection. <laughs> Those are the visual people. It's driving them crazy. <laughs> so... The fact is that all of those ranges, and if you really look back at everything that I've done so far today, I've used all of them. I've used all of them, and yet most speakers will come out and they will deliver their talk right here. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and fellow Toastmasters. I'm going to continue to speak like this for another hour and a half. And as I continue to speak like this, I'd like you to know that the cabin me depressurizes. In the event that the cabin depressurizes, oxygen masks will drop from the ceiling. <laughs> ah! So these people, louder, faster. These people, more cadence, more predictability, better pronunciation. These people, soft, long pauses. These people use words like vision, destiny. <laughs> see it done. These people are crazy. They say stuff like, can't you see what I'm saying? No, you're not a cartoon. Right? And these people here, they use words like, listen, that clicks for me. I like the sound of that. That resonates. And then these people, they talk about, it's in my gut. I feel really warm. Is it true? But here's the great thing, is that your audience has all of those people in it. And it's not that there's 30%, 30%. It's not like that. That's the way it's taught very often. If you've studied neurolinguistic programming or psychology, they'll often teach that there are some people that are like this and there are some people. No, don't do that. It's a thermostat. 
It's a thermostatic range. So there's some people that are here and here and here and here and here all the way up. Your whole audience is made up of these people. And I learned this because I'll tell you, it's not just useful on stage. It's useful in your entire life. The first time I learned it, I was 22 years old and I was in another category just slightly above this called global thermonuclear visual. It made Tony Robbins look very quiet. I was so fast and so excited about everything and I was always, I was like this. I was terrified to be on stage, but in my friends, I was nuclear visual. And then I went off and I learned this stuff and I was in sales and I was on telesales and I would pick up the phone and I'd call people and go, hi, this is Eric. I'm gonna sell you some stuff today. And I did very well. I had the highest call levels of our company. I had the highest closing average of our company. I was the best in our company consistently. And then one day I learned this stuff and I sat down at my desk and I was ready to make more calls than I've ever made before. The average salesperson in our company was making 35 calls a day. I was making 50 a day. Who was making the most money? Me. But I had made a commitment to get to 75 a day now. I was not gonna have a moment of peace. I was gonna make calls every second. And I went down and I went to make my first call. I picked up the phone and there's Marilyn. And I'm going, oh, damn it. I don't want her to be the first call today. The woman never takes my call never returns my call. But we didn't come here for this to be easy, did we? Did any of you come into this life for it to be easy? Because I wanna just put to you that sometimes you want it to be easier, but if video games are any easier, people stop playing them. If books are any easier, you wouldn't read them. And I just wanna put to you that the next time your life's a little difficult, you should rejoice in that because you came here for that, didn't you? I'll prove it to you. How many of you have ever had that breakup? You know the one the really soul-destroying breakup? Who's had the soul-destroying, crying, awful breakup? What kind of music did you listen to? Okay, you came here because it's delicious. Even the pain is delicious. That's why we listen to that. So glad you made it. I will just sit here and cry myself to sleep. We like it. Okay, where was I going with that? Marilyn, Marilyn. I actually did forget that time. You got me, Marilyn. And so I pick up the phone and I call Marilyn. I'm gonna, I'm gonna break through. I'm gonna get through my, I pick up the phone. Because millennials back then we had to press buttons. <laughs> and, and before that we actually had to dial. You, you might not know this. When we talk about dialing a phone number, it's because we used to have to dial. Anyway, so I, I press the buttons. And then Marilyn does not answer the phone because she never does, but her voicemail comes on. Hi, this is Marilyn and uh, I'm not here to take your call, <laughs> but if you feel like it, you can leave a message, you know, <laughs> after the beep. I'm going, ah, <sighs> beep. Hey, Marilyn, this is it. <gasps> That's not what I learned. And I delete the message. I put the phone down. I step back from the desk. That is not what I learned. That is not what I learned. That is not what I learned. Okay, I know what I learned. Um, softly pressing the buttons. Hi, this is Marilyn. It's still irritating me, but I'm going to get through it. And then the beep comes on. I'm like, hi, Marilyn. This is Eric. And I... Um, I guess you're not there to take my call right now. But if you feel like it, you can call me back. Here's my number. 
And then I put the phone down and I felt icky, like icky, like, <laughs> like it's just, yeah. <sighs> so then I go back to making my calls, but here's the thing. I was proud of myself. It felt odd and it felt weird because everything new does. Everything new feels odd and weird, doesn't it? And so I was proud of myself that I was willing to get through the odd and new. It, one of the biggest things you can do in your life is get over the fear of the first 5% of stuff. If any of you are really good at playing the first you know, little bit of Stairway to Heaven on the piano, it's because you didn't get through the first 5%. If you got through the first 5%, you can play the piano now. And most of us get stumped by the first 5% of new behavior. And I was really proud of myself that I did it. I would never know because it was a voicemail. I wouldn't know necessarily if it worked or not, right? But then I'm, I'm making more phone calls and then my phone rings on my desk. Now, millennials, what I'm about to share, any millennials that are here and anybody who's younger than millennials, what I'm about to say is actually quite frightening for you. So I suggest you grab somebody's hand <laughs> just because it's scary. But back then when people called us, we didn't have call display. We didn't know who was calling. I'm surprised any of us are still sane. And then you know what we would do, even though we didn't know who it was? We answered the phone. So, so I pick up the phone, and, and by the way, how does 22-year-old global thermonuclear Eric answer the phone? Hi, this is Eric, having a great day, how about you? Something, oh. And this is what I hear. I hear somebody having a seizure. And I'm like, what the hell is this? And then I hear this. Uh, um, is there an Eric working there? Yeah, let me get him for you. <laughs> I come back. I come back and I go, hi, Marilyn. <laughs> this is Eric. <laughs> and she ended up becoming one of my best customers because finally I was speaking to her in her language. And so what I wanna to suggest to you is you need to do the same thing with the audience. You need to do the very same thing with the audience. You need to speak to them in the language they wanna hear. And the problem is, is that they want to hear all of these. They wanna hear them all. And so you have to give them to them all. So here's my question for you. Knowing that you have people that are way more down on the kinesthetic scale and you have people way up high on the visual scale, where should you start? Where should you start? Now, any of my students, don't answer this. I wanna hear it from everybody. Where do you think we should start? In the middle, right? Sound like a good place? Here's the thing. Some people say that you should start up at visual. How many people think we should maybe start at visual? Anybody thinking that? How many people think middle? How many people think kinesthetic? Okay, so, and then a lot of people just don't think we should start, because I didn't. <laughs> so, Tony Robbins starts here, doesn't he? I've done many events with him and I got some really good advice. They said, Eric, your normal system won't work working with Tony because Tony has set the audience up and he's filtered out the kinesthetic people. There are not a lot of kinesthetic people at his seminars. There just aren't. They, if they were in his seminars, they would need therapy. And so, <laughs> and not from him. <laughs> and so, so, so when you walk on stage at a Tony Robbins event, you have to walk out and you gotta start off and you go, oh my God, I'm so glad you guys are here. We're gonna have so much fun today. And you gotta jump in and start like that because that's the frequency of the room. But if you start visual, if you walk out and say, we're gonna have so much fun in this next section, I'm gonna show you how to transform your business and you're gonna learn about marketing and it's gonna be amazing, then the kinesthetic people will call the police. 
They'll be, and they will leave the room and they will leave. They will be gone. They will be like physically hurt by your delivery. And frankly, the auditory people pretty much believe in with them. They might put up with it if they're kind of high end here. But if they're a little lower, they're going to leave too. They're going to feel pain. They're going to be gone. If you start in the middle, you come out and you say, good evening, ladies and gentlemen and fellow Toastmasters. Okay? Then these kinesthetic people, some of them are still going to be irritated. And the visual people, no big deal. They barely noticed. But if you start down here, if you walk out and you connect with the room and you create a sense of connection with them, and then with that connection, you start to build a little bit more intensity and you can bring the speed up into a more auditory tone. And then as you've caught their attention on this more auditory tone and you start to get more excited about your delivery, then you can build up to a complete crescendo and you've done it on this ramp. It's called the charisma pattern. And it works because of this. When you start down here, you get rapport with the kinesthetic people. The visual people, they're not injured by what you're doing. In fact, frankly, they don't even know you're doing it because they haven't even seen that you've started. <laughs> they haven't. You've started and the visual people are still talking to each other. But the kinesthetic people are just going, finally, I like this one, right? And then as you start to warm up, the auditory people are going, oh, oh, I think it started. Yeah, and the kinesthetic people are going, it's been going for two minutes already. Come on. And the auditory people are going, yeah, but it's pretty good. And the kinesthetic people are going, yeah, of course it's been, it's been good for two minutes. But notice the kinesthetic people still think it's good, even though it's come up. It's called pacing and leading. And then what happens is you finally build up to crescendo. And once you've gotten to that place of crescendo, the, the, the visual people are going, it started. And the visual people are going, it started and it's really good. It's fantastic. And the kinesthetic people are going, it's been fantastic for like eight minutes already. But notice the kinesthetic people still like it because you took them there. Now, often, I want you to think about this. I want you to, how many of you guys are familiar with the song, Stairway to Heaven? Think about the way that starts. How does it start? It's a folk song, soft guitar. Robert Plant sounds like an angel singing at the beginning. Eight minutes later, what does Robert Plant sound like? And as we wind on down the road, I mean, oh my God. If he started there, no, the kinesthetic people would never have listened to that song. But it is the most requested song in the history of radio because it runs the charisma pattern. How many of you guys ever heard the song Lose Yourself by Eminem? Go listen to it again. It is the most gentle, gorgeous, soft starting song. And eight minutes later, Eminem is screaming his heart out. But the kinesthetic people like it because they were taken on that journey. That song spent 13 or 14 weeks at number one. That never happens anymore. When you use the charisma pattern, you really get to take your audience with you. I want you to think about this. How many of you ever watched Martin Luther King? Yeah? So here's the thing. When you see Martin Luther King in the media, they typically show you one part of his speech. Matter of fact, let's go to somebody a little less positive in society. How many of you ever seen a video of Adolf Hitler speaking? Anybody seen that video? What part of the speech do they show you? They show you the crescendo only. They only show you the crescendo. They do not show you the fact that Hitler was a genius speaker. Evil, disgusting, terrible, but a genius speaker. And what he would do with his audiences is he ran the charisma pattern. He would start off soft and he'd bring them up. But the part you see in the, in the movie, the part you see on the old reels kind of looks like this. 
you wonder, you want, like, I don't, know, I don't know if you had this, but I'd always like, how does that stupid little mustache stay on? I, I don't understand, right? But the same thing when you see Martin Luther King, they will usually show in old archival footage, they show him standing there and he's like, and, he, and, and the first thing you see is, I have a dream. If he started there, they would have had him locked up. They were trying to have him locked up anyway. But the fact is, is that he didn't start there. It's just that you see it that way. If you go watch the original video and this is the genius thing you have that I didn't when I started this journey, you have YouTube. You have YouTube, guys. And I want you to know YouTube is not for cute kittens. Okay, it is, it is. But it's actually for really interesting study and archival research as a speaker because all the great speeches are on there. And if you watch Martin Luther King, he starts off gently. He starts off softly. And then he builds up to a crescendo. And that is the charisma pattern. And that's how it works. It's powerful. And it's not something you only do at the beginning. You can run through cycles of it as I've done here this morning, at times dropping down softly and then bringing you back up. It keeps your attention. Do you realize that we have been in this room for three hours? No, you don't really, do you? And on one level, doesn't it feel like it's been 10 minutes? But on another level, doesn't it feel like we've been here for a week? Because when stories are being told and delivered well, then you create time warp, you create illusion, and you really get to sink things in. You will remember the things we talked about here today. And I want you to take them out and practice them. And I wanna leave you with some tips on how you can make sure that you really, really improve your confidence and your skills as a speaker. I want you to remember that you need to breathe properly. That the next time somebody asks you to do a talk and you notice that your instinct is to come up here, I want you to force a deep breath or two or three. Push your stomach out, not your chest. Push your stomach out when you breathe. It should be like... And then it comes up in your chest. And do two or three of those and you will feel better. I want you to remember that if you use your eyes softly and you gaze out at the world, you will create a feeling of being incredibly relaxed. I want you to remember that nervousness and excitement are effectively the same thing. And so that if you can learn to create better pictures in your head, you will transition your nervousness into excitement. Remember that nervousness is just excitement about scary stuff. And excitement is just nervousness about super cool stuff. And then I also want you to remember that you start your talk with a really predictable beginning where you can walk on stage. I want you to remember that you walk on stage and trigger a laugh from the very beginning. And I wanna end with a little bit of a story about how I do that, how I start many of my talks, because it was a really important day in my life and I think it can teach you guys some valuable lessons about belief. I believe that one of the most powerful things you can change about yourself is your belief. And belief is not black and white. It's not I believe or I don't believe. It's not like that. You believe in degrees. Isn't it true? You believe in degrees. And so something like Mindvalley University, something like the courses and quests that you do on Mindvalley, what they're really designed to do is give you information partially, but a big part of what they're designed to do is to help you improve your sense of belief. Improving your sense of belief changes everything for you. It changes the way you see the world. 1% belief allows you to see things that you didn't see before. How many of you had the experience where, you know, you hear this, people talk about this all the time. You decide one day you wanna buy a car and all of a sudden that car is everywhere, right? Where was it before? Why couldn't you see it before? I'm gonna to put to you, you could see it before. Because if you couldn't see it before, you would have tried to park in the same parking spot. 
You could see it, but you couldn't see it for what it was because it wasn't important to you. When you start getting a sense of belief about things, you change everything. Beliefs are like little viruses and they eat only one kind of food and that is evidence. They just eat evidence. So if you have a belief that all the great opportunities in the world are gone, you will find evidence of it. You will eat that evidence and the belief will get stronger. But if you have a belief that there's tons of opportunity around you all the time, then you will start spotting that and you will eat that evidence and your belief will get stronger. Does this make sense? And so one day I got this phone call and the phone call was, would I come out and teach business and marketing with Tony Robbins? And I really legitimately thought that it was a joke. I I literally thought, literally, as in actually, (laughs) that it was a joke, that it was a practical joke. And so I, at first I said, I didn't say no. I was just like, whatever, whatever. You don't really want me. And then suddenly the guy's like, yeah, Tony really wants you. Tony really wants you. And I suddenly realized what's going on. The other speaker they had booked couldn't make it. I knew that for reasons. He had passed away. That made it difficult. <laughs> and, uh, and then they called, because there was only 11 days to the event, they'd called all the other potential speakers and they'd all said no. And so they were calling me and it wasn't that Tony wanted me. It's that they wanted me to go and speak. And if they could convince me to say yes, they were gonna go convince Tony. I knew it. I said, Mitch, no, 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 no. Tony doesn't want me. You need a speaker at this event. You want a speaker at this event. And so you're trying to convince me to do it because the guy died and the other people couldn't make it. And the dude, that, the crazy dude that's always talking about Jesus, he won't even do it. And so now it's me. And if I say yes, you're gonna call Tony and you're gonna to beg Tony to let me on the stage. And there's silence on the phone. And Mitch goes, yeah, but I can convince him for sure. (laughs) And so I agree to do it. And 11 days later, I'm flying along to Fiji. And as the plane comes in, coming up over the palm trees, I can see them below. And I suddenly think to myself, wow, this is a big deal. It suddenly hits me what a big deal this is. I have not been on stage for three years. I had been doing no speaking of any kind. Is this a great way to restart my speaking career? (laughs) Well, yes or no, depending on how it goes, right? I suddenly realized that what I've done might not be so smart. Like if I bomb this, it's gonna, it could ruin my career. But if I rock this, I suddenly think if I rock this, if I really do it well, then not only will I have done well and maybe created some reputation for myself, but maybe, maybe I could get on the list so they don't only call me in an emergency. Maybe I could do that. Is that a cool thought? But you know what's really fascinating about the way you dream and the way you fantasize is you can only dream and fantasize from the position you're in right now. You have already achieved impossible things in your lives. And at some point, you, you know, we buy into impossible, but you've already done impossible things. What happened in my case is as soon as I accepted that I could get on the list, it was like taking the elevator floor up to another level of possibility. And so now the plane actually touched down in Fiji and I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I do really well, I won't just get on the list. I wanna become the list. Is that a better thought? Yeah. And all that had happened is as soon as I accepted the one reality, even though it hadn't happened yet, I was able to see the next reality. There is a clue in this. You adjust your beliefs and it changes the way you see the world. And so in the end, I'm told when I get there that Tony will not be introducing me himself. He never introduces the speakers anyway, or rarely. But the biggest reason he's not gonna introduce me is that the reason they had my name is my friend Chet had given them my name and my friend Chet was tone deaf about speakers. Like he could not tell a good speaker from a bad speaker. If you were, he would have gone to that event in Poland and he would have seen the woman on the stage thought she was a great speaker. He, everybody on stage is a great speaker. So he'd recommended a few speakers to Tony and they'd all bombed. And so his advice, his recommendation to Tony was like, that was a guarantee to never be at Tony's event ever again. And so I knew that Tony knew that. And so when Tony wasn't gonna introduce me, the reason he wasn't gonna introduce me is he was afraid I'd bomb. 
So he doesn't want to go up and say great things about me. And then I bomb, right? Is that fair? I get it. And so instead, the Chinese translator is going to introduce me. And Chinese translator, by the way, is on stage translating live, not like these guys in the booths at the back. By the way, for those of you who are getting this in Russian, are they doing a great job for you? Give the translators a big hand. So these translators, they're different. They're not sitting in the booth. They're here on stage. They're not just translators. They're impersonators. So you got Tony Robbins up on stage going, if you want to make big changes in your life, you got to take massive action. You got to take a decision and take action. And then the translator comes on and he goes, <laughs> they're incredible. But in the end, in the end, Tony isn't going to introduce me because he's going to introduce me, which is fine with me. But then Tony changes his mind. We meet in the hallway. He walks up to me. He goes, Eric, how do you feel about your presentation? I go, well, you know, 11 days notice. You're making me use somebody else's slides. It's not perfect. And he goes, you could be a lot more confident. And I said, Tony, the reason I'm here is that I'm a business operator. I'm a business owner, not an operator. My companies work for me. I am able to come on 11 days notice because my companies work. Your other speakers, sadly, not the case. I think I'm going to be okay. And he went, well, all right then. And then, and then he went to his team and he said, I want to introduce that guy. I really liked him. And then, where's the introduction? And they go, well, we, we can't find it. We translated it and gave it to the Chinese guy and he only has it in Chinese. And Tony says, well, translate it back. And so where the introduction said, Eric started his first business and sold it nine years later. That's what it said. Tony instead walked out and he says, you guys, I'm so excited to introduce this next speaker. He started his business, his first business, when he was only nine years old. <laughs> you guys, I've had so much fun with you today. Thank you so much for your love and your passion. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you so much. And this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley Podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body? your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.